So if it is something that <coughs> an aspect of our, our life that we know very clearly, then such a topic will just be common sense. And then one may have not such a great interest. At most it may be boring to speak about something which is very common sense. But if we feel uh, some reluctance about speaking about that or hearing about that, it means that something in us is threatened. Something in us we feel that may be vulnerable. So what is there that we may feel may be in danger when we're speaking about death? maybe a sense, a vague sense, that somehow I am never going to die. I know I'm going to die, but how do I really feel that? Some sense or wishes that I will be eternal. So now we have to consider the aspect of death. And that may of course contradict these deep wishes that I may have within myself. To face that, yet to reflect deeply on death will maybe lead us to let go of this wish or this sort of vague sense that I may be eternal and this letting go of that sense may also be experienced as a freedom. So it's not to make ourselves depressed, rather to make ourselves free of this completely senseless demand that we or people we love may live forever. So however we may have examples that it is not true, yet somewhere we still hold on to that sense. Freud <coughs> wrote somewhere that it's very strange when somebody dies, people start to speak very uh, softly. And they have some sense of mystery, like if the dead person had succeeded in some magical tool. Something is very strange there. How, how did they do that? Not that it is difficult to die, but the perception we have of the life is such that it does not really fit with the possibility of dying. So there is an element there of shock. So reflection on, on death plays a very important role in most of the philosophy. We may find so many very clear statements and reflection on that uh, among the great philosophers of the past and of course in all the religious tradition played a very important role. And in the most ancient tradition the way it was explored or expressed is very interesting. 
because for the young people or the chosen people to discover the secrecy of life then they were going or they were undergoing some initiation one would be initiated into the secrecy of life and this initiation were always following a pattern where the death will be enacted in a symbolic way so in other tradition there was something of a dying to a profane world a profane vision of the world to finally take rebirth into a um, sacred way of seeing the world in a sacred life so we may see in many traditions how that was done that uh, sometimes in a very um, strong way that the initiated people would undergo this kind of very difficult situation which will really be a symbol of uh, the death and then come again to life and I have some example where it's very interesting that those people initiated would go back to to their home or to their village and they were not supposed to be able to walk anymore or to speak or to recognize their own home so they were really completely coming anew not the old person they were before the initiation but completely new so there is a sense that death is something which is a type of initiation very deep that one then can be reborn in something much deeper much vaster and uh, maybe that the special wisdom that the tribe was holding was will only be told to the people after the initiation when they had come to this sacred world not before a sense of sharing some kind of mystery at this point and in the life of some saintly people we may see how this process has been happening there's one example interesting in the mother of one Tibetan Lama and she was the reincarnation of some high Lama and when she was still young about 24 she had some dreams some very strange dreams and she went to tell her Lama the dream that she had and he said well your life is in danger that you may certainly die very soon but maybe <coughs> if you do some uh, rituals to some deity for long life and so on maybe uh, that's not going to be uh, um, the end of your life so he gave all the instruction and that when she will die from the sickness arising that they should put her in a room and the room will be completely locked and there will be a monk just day and night outside the door that nobody would come in and that after three days they will do some uh, rituals and then they will enter the room again so they did and they check when she died bring a mirror to see if there was no sign of any breathing anymore and then close the door and seal the door and after three days they, they came in again did their rituals and then this woman opened the eyes again and she said well people wanted to bring her food you know drink and eat and uh, and she could not she said no, no, wait and uh, that was too, too fast then 
for all the rest of her life, with some moderation, she would teach and teach um, according to what she had seen in this time, those three days. Seen people in different difficult situations that she knew before and were there to rebirth and, uh, and she really took a lot of that experience for the teaching of our disciples. So that in the Tibetan tradition, those uh, people are called their law, which means there is to pass away and law is to come back. And this tradition, a friend of mine did a research in Bhutan about that. Uh, some women who were renowned to be their law. So, okay, that's strange and what can, one can imagine in the Tibetan tradition one finds so many weird things, you know. Okay, that was in Kham, Eastern Tibet, very far away from here. That's fine, but nearly at the same time as I was reading something completely different. It was a life story of a great uh, saint, uh, um, which I think most fantastic, it is Saint Therese of Avila. And well, then reading when she was young, she, went to, she wanted to stay in the monastery, so she went for some time, and then she went to see some uncle, where she found some books about contemplation. Then she came home and she was quite sick. And then she died. She was 20 and something. She died and her father was so attached that he did not want the nun to bring her corpse to the uh, grave. And so, you know, they, put, they, put, they were putting some wax on the eyes and uh, for, for three days uh, the, the nun were praying and, and uh, crying there. Uh, there were candles. And after three days she opened the eyes. So imagine if they were about to bury her, certainly they did uh, some checking at this time. So she came alive again, and then she lived, uh, I think, more than 70 years old, so she was not so strong, the story said, but anyway, she did a lot of things, built a lot of monasteries, and lived more than 70. So we can see that for her, and she went back, of course, to the monastery after that, and uh, in a very way. So it was not that she wasn't uh, before completely concerned just by uh, worldly life and suddenly she died and she, she went into religion. It was more maybe also for her father to understand that better to have uh, his daughter in the monastery than in the grave, you see, and maybe let her go a little bit more easily after that, you know. So it's quite uh, amazing again, you know, very different places, different time, but quite similar stories, you know. different tradition, and I know the Tibetan did not read Spanish at this time, so that nobody had read the life story of St. Teresa of Avila. Well, even in the story of Christ, you see, I mean, he died and, and, and appeared again, so it's quite uh, also very important in a symbolic way. In India, you know, the, some of the holy men, they spread their body with ashes from the um, fire, meaning that they have been burned and reborn again. And you need, it means they are, of course, leaving their family and their caste, and that's the way for them to enter into religion. So really it is a symbolic death, which then allows those people to go into a spiritual life. Even in the life of the Buddha, if we check a little bit more carefully what did happen when he left the palace, you know, the same, carried by some deva, on his heart and went outside, so the first thing he did, he, he cut his hair. And if one read about 
the way that the courts were treated at this time, then one see that one was cutting all hair and nails of the uh, corpse before doing the uh, funerals. So it has also a sign of that. Then he changed of clothes, and then he changed his name. He didn't want to be called Siddhartha anymore. So there is also some element of starting something completely new. A symbolic way of, of dying to enter into some kind of more essential way of living. And in the tantric tradition, the initiation also follows a very complex pattern. And in this pattern, I will tell you a bit later, then these processes of, of uh, dying is observed and uh, used in a symbolic way, in a very, very precise way. Although they don't explain in the initiation going back to the symbolic, to a symbolic death, yet we, you will see it's very, it's very clear that also, in a sense, is meant by, by that. So I'll come back to a much more traditional way of uh, speaking about death, like it is taught in the Buddhist tradition. So first comes the first point about the certainty of death, saying that it cannot be avoided. There is no way that one can bribe death when it comes, you know. Well, I give you something, then you give me some more monsters, and you come back later. There is no way that one can do anything about it. And there is a story, uh, a Muslim story, quite uh, beautiful about that. You know, it is a, a trader living somewhere near Samarkand, and um, he has a son, and he goes to the marketplace one day, and there death is coming to meet him. He said, where's your son? And uh, the trader said, well, he's home. Oh, that's good. Tell him I, I, I come to meet him tomorrow. And death goes away. Then the next morning, the trader called his son and said, you take my best horse and please you run to some account because death is coming to meet you. Trader goes back to the market and then death is coming there and say, well, where is your son? And the trader said, well, he's home. And they say, oh, that's very strange because I have to meet your son in some account. <laughs> so, you see, it's difficult, it seems, to uh, avoid death in any tradition. So the second point is that every instant of our life is bringing us closer to our death, wherever this instant of death will be. Another point is that nobody actually made it or made his way out of life in a different way than dying. We don't have any account that somebody sneak out some doors, which was not death, and, and uh, or there may be some magical explanation or, or stories, but it seems that historically we have no account of anybody who had found some way out. Maybe there is some way out, but nobody has yet uh, found it. So even if we read the life about very powerful uh, kings and so on, you know, Alexander the Great, uh, he also had to die. The, the most wealthy people, the most powerful people, nobody had a way out but uh, by dying. So, we more common uh, beings may not have too much chance to find a way out, not by buying, not by power. 
Well, death, death is certain and the time of death is uncertain. As I was saying the other day, I mean, we often imagine that death comes at the end of our life, but it's the reverse. The end of our life comes with death, and there's no way to know when that will happen. It can happen at any time. And it's not that we will become mortal just one second before dying and before we are not mortal, before we are immortal. We are eternal, but just we lose this quality one second before dying. Suddenly we lose something, some power of being immortal and there. It's also referred to one quality that we have, that we are changing every instant. And that quality then makes us fragile and that we can be subject to death at any moment. So uncertainty of, uh, of the time of death and it seems it always comes unexpected. Even when some people are very sick it always comes unexpected. There is some element there um, again of something is not possible when somebody dies. Because according to how we see life and how we see being and how we see ourselves, it is not possible suddenly not to exist anymore. So there is there some kind of shock in a philosophical sense. If you hear the death of someone, about the death of someone, even if you are not too much attached to this person, there is some element of shock there. How is it possible? Yeah, I saw him, I saw her yesterday. How is it possible? It's not that, oh, that's too bad, it was uh, soon. No, no how is how that possible? So there is a sense that the way we are seeing beings, ourselves and human beings, that something does not, is not compatible with the fact that we are dying. So, is it that death is untrue? Or is it that the way we are seeing our life is maybe not proper? So something is not proper, either the way we see our life or death is not real. Something does not fit together. So Bataille, a French writer, wrote beautifully, which uh, <laughs> tried to render that in English, but uh, uh, he said, I'll give the, sen the, the sense of that. He said that death reveal or show the pretense or the imposture of reality. So when death is arising, the illusory aspect of reality it is revealed very clearly. If death is possible, then the way we are seeing reality is not true. And uh, Freud also said something, he said, is it interesting when we speak about the death or maybe something happening, uh, happening suddenly to somebody, we always um, really are concerned by the cause, like if, oh, that's too bad, that could have been avoided. You know, those causes, they were always something just happened by, by bad luck. But it's not that, obviously, there, there will be always some causes of death, you know. But we just look at those 
circumstance and believe, oh, that's too bad. If he had not, or she had not do that, you know, if she has not done that, then uh, she will be, or he will be still here. You know, like at every time we could just avoid, or you just choose the right thing, then uh, this planet will be full of very, very old people, you know. <laughs> uh, when Gilgo Kensei Rinpoche died, it seemed that for some kind of illness, maybe because he, he was given some water which was not so clean to drink. And speaking with some of the people, they say, when Midi was coming down from Sikkim, he was so thirsty, one of his servants may have taken water, I don't know where, and, uh, and he got sick and died, he was 80 and something. So the first reaction is, oh, that's too bad, I mean, you know, if the servant has not been so, or, or more trustful and say, I'm sorry, we don't have any, any water, Rinpoche, can you wait a bit longer, you know. But again, is to look for some, because he was old and maybe it will be the next day, some other causes may have uh, arisen, you know. So it's like we could maybe sneak in very, very long, just avoiding any you know, stone falling or something like that. Because there's only a very, very small cause enough to cause death. Very, very small, uh, tiny, uh, I don't know how you call that, organism, just you know, we drink it and that's enough to die within a very short amount of time. But the condition to keep us alive, they are so complex. We need a lot of things. We need oxygen and in some kind and not some other kind and then some temperature and then some food and uh, we need a lot of things. If there would be some smoke in this room and maybe a little bit too much and some type of smoke, then very quickly maybe we will all die. So the conditions to sustain life are very complex and difficult to gather. So if something would just happen at one place where something is not there, well, that was bad luck. So let's come down to the time of death. So at this time, then, it is said that all friends and relatives will be powerless. You may have the best friend, even know the best doctor there, and they may have done a good job for some time, but when the time of death is there, they can't do anything. They can't come with you and take you by hand, and say, right, I will go a few steps with you. No way. Then at this time, <coughs> we'll be left alone. And all the possession we may have, however many they may be, nothing we'll be able to take. And where, then we will be a cop there, lying somewhere, and if somebody is coming to stole or to steal a, a watch, you know, golden watch, I mean, the cop is not going to uh, <laughs> hold the hand and say, well, yeah, that's, m that's mine, you know. <laughs> For the cop, doesn't matter. Just the body has been uh, left. So all the possession, nothing we can take with us. And that seems obvious, well, Maybe not always, in a deeper sense, if you imagine, like in China, for example, in this, in Xi'an, where they have uh, buried, you know, those big statues of, of soldiers, you know, thousands of statues they have buried there for the emperor who died. So, believing certainly that he will be protected by this army put in a special way, and there were chariots and weapons and food and so many things, like in the Egyptian also. They were giving so many um, objects 
food, uh, so much food to, to the um, cops. So in a sense, maybe in those tradition and culture, they thought that may be useful in some sense for the dead man. And we also have story nowadays of very, very rich people, some of them maybe the richest people in the world, and then uh, they can't even spend their money. It's some kind of anxiety. More they have, they believe more power they have to maybe buy life, you know. It's kind of uh, holding on to that like if it will be able to protect them against death. You know, some even don't have children and their money they'll just go to the state or whatsoever. Yet, they just cling so much to them. They will spend, I don't know how much every day, they could not spend all, even if they were to live 150 years old. Yet, yet they cannot let go of that. There is a sense of anxiety and more they have, more they feel protected. If you ask them what they will take with them when they will be dead, at first they will not speak to you anymore, but uh, uh, <laughs> certainly they will not pretend that uh, they can take anything. Yet there is a deep fear there which is expressed in this sense of keeping as much as possible all the, the possession and the wealth. So it is at the time of the death, so wha- what, uh, what will be helpful? Oh, the friends? It may be nice, but maybe not so helpful. And the position, and even our body, if we keep very fit in doing jogging every day, you know, well, at this time it won't be so much useful. So, maybe at this time the something deeper can be useful. Some deeper sense of knowing ourselves may be useful. So let's see even more in details what's happening at death from the Tibetan tradition. So we really go into that experience. From the Tibetan, from the Indian tradition, actually, they explain the functioning of the body as the interplay of four elements, which is earth, water, fire, and air elements. So when those elements are in balance then health is there. If one is lightly in balance, then a sickness is arising. And then maybe the doctor may bring back a balance in those elements, and then health is restored at this time. But at the time of death, it's not possible to restore anymore the balance of those four elements. Then they will lose their power completely. So the experience of death will be the experience of the power going away of those four elements, that would be the first part. And the consciousness to function, to function, to perceive, is depending on a very subtle air element, which is all pervading our body and um, circulating in different sense in our body. And in our human condition, there are some parts where it's blocked. So we have many channels there in our body where the subtle air element can um, move connected with consciousness, and some uh, nuts somewhere. So at the time of death also, those uh, nuts will just untie themselves, and then the air elements, very subtle air element can uh, flow, and the consciousness also is going to go from gross consciousness to subtle consciousness and to more subtle consciousness. So there is different type of experience. So 
The first element to lose its power is earth. So the body cannot move anymore. So we're just in the process of death. Earth cannot move, um, body cannot move anymore, and eye consciousness disappears. Then the inner vision of the dying person will be some kind of um, mirage when there is in um, very, when it's very hot and you believe there's water, but actually it's just because of the heat. That's the inner experience. Then the next step is water element is losing its power. The eye and nose become dry. Hearing consciousness disappear, and the dying person sees some kind of smoke. Then fire element will lose its power, the heat of the body is going away, the smelling consciousness is going away, and the dying person will be some sparks of light. Then the air element will lose its power, so the last breath uh, will end there, the tactile and tasting consciousness will stop, and it's like the inner vision is like just um, like um, a candle or a butter lamp just at the, uh, before um, extinguish it itself, you know. Just the last glow of this light. That's the inner experience. Yet, death is not yet here, so that's the all mostly the ex external aspect. So now, the body will, all the, the channel will start to loosen, and then the dying person will experience more and more subtle experiences and all the gross consciousness will fade away. So now we have seen all the um, sense perception have gone. So subtle concepts are still here, but they will just uh, fade away one after the other. They describe 80 different types of, of concepts, they just uh, vanish. So the third type of ex first type of experience will be of a white light. And then some amount of the uh, concept will go away. Then it will be of a red light. Then some other amount of concept will go. All the concept will will vanish. And then there will be a black experience. There's no thought at this time, no concept anymore. Then after that comes the more subtle experience, which is a clear light of death, which is after this experience of black um, experience, because it didn't to speak about the black light, but the black experience, then the consciousness reach is most subtle level. In our living experience, we have the experience of the daily consciousness, which is quite gross, and more subtle type of experience, like in sleep, so that is much, much, that is a uh, most subtle type of, of consciousness, clear light of death. At this time, there is no um, concept, no perception, um, nothing is arising there. And this consciousness is the closest to the consciousness of being awakened. That is like going through this process of death when we reach the deepest in this experience then the mind is the same as the mind of somebody awakened. Because no, no concept, nothing, no illusion at, at this time, nothing is left there. Now, for ordinary being, 
then the consciousness will leave the body. This very, very subtle consciousness will leave the body. And then connect again with some kind of very subtle physical element and go in the reverse process. Then the black uh, experience will arise, then the red light and the white light, and then the preconception and, and so on. That's what will arise. And according to the Tibetan tradition, the first experience will be to take rebirth in the bardo state, which means in the very subtle in-between stage. And that may be several times of the same experience, and at least after 49 days, one will take a new birth in any kind of uh, physical existence, or, or more subtle if it is uh, um, our karma there. So going through the same and reverse uh, state. So it's explained there, so this most subtle uh, consciousness being similar to a consciousness of awakening. So that's why in Tibetan tradition one uses sometimes the time of death to try to awaken. They say that the great Tsongkhapa awakened in the time of death. Because if one by some yoga, one would train oneself, then rather than when this more subtle uh, time comes, rather than being completely, in a sense, powerless, rising again in the black, red and white, one at this time will know that those perceptions are not true reality. So you go, you go all down the way that the show is just, everything is over. And usually, for ordinary being, it all starts again. And one believes exactly the same way. Yet, for the great yogi, when he's starting again, at this time he knows that's a show. So he does not cling to anything as being a true, truly existing. Then he's free. So in the Tibetan tradition, that also practiced sometimes in a very, in a very subtle way. I said I will connect that with initiation. Initiation there leading to this type of practice that is called the Deity Yoga, where the meditator will experience within himself the dissolution of the different elements. By some visualization, then you will see that the earth element is um, dissolving and all the other element, then you will experience all the way down to um, white, red and black experience. And then you will reach a very, very subtle consciousness which is similar to the one at death. Not the one at death, otherwise you will be dying. But very similar. Then what's happening in, the, in his practice there, rather than stopping his meditation, and okay, you always stay a long time there, he's come back and he's in this world like that, he will train to arise again, but knowingly, so that at the time of death, he's not going to be cheated and believe that those expenses arising again are true reality. So how is he going to do that? In his practice, or her practice, then the meditator will when you expand that, the most subtle consciousness, similar to the one of, uh, of the death, then you will rise, not in an ordinary surrounding, but in a, in a mandala. And then himself, not on the form of a, a human being, but on the form of a Buddha. And those mandala and the form of a Buddha, 
they are perceived as being not truly existent. So this deity yoga has some element which is most fascinating because it's like practicing that one will try in dying and taking rebirth freely. It's like there will be a, a course in trying to die, you know, like we can uh, learn so many things, but then let's learn to die. You know, some people are afraid of flying in an airplane, so they take some course now, or maybe to, to give birth for some women now. There is a course to learn how to die and not to take birth again in a conditioned world. So very, very complex practice there. But how then can that be connected um, with our practice? This reflection on, on death and the aspect sometimes quite uh, unpleasant about that. You know. So tradition is a way that is done. Is When you think about death and it can come so fast, then you better run and do practice your meditation which is one aspect and uh, one useful aspect of it. But we may also reflect on that and see that the fact that we are dying and that we will be dying is that a clear sign that we are conditioned. All what is conditioned is impermanent, Buddha said just before dying. So that is really our conditioned aspect. Now, if we come to a spiritual path, aiming at that which is unconditioned, and the first thing which is asked from us, okay, let then let go of your conditioned aspect, and say, no, 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 that I want, you know, I want to keep my conditioned aspect, my life and my body and uh, even my youth or whatsoever, and then one is aspiring completely to what is unconditioned. So obviously we have to choose. Uh, are we really concerned with what is unconditioned or pretending? Then, if we start to reflect on this and see that what is asked there, what we, that what we may be ready to lose is our very conditioning. Am I ready to lose my conditioning, my conditioned aspect? all that, what I may cling to that. And this clinging is, of course, my conditioning. And if our deepest nature is that which is unconditioned, so that cannot die. That has nothing to do with what is conditioned, what can be separated. That cannot be, of course, not grasped. That cannot be said to be eternal, neither to be non-eternal. It's something completely different. So, are we willing to let go of the small for the being? Of course, unconditioned has no sign. So, reflecting on death may also lead us to see what is the essential and what we are look, really looking for. We are ready to sacrifice our condition existence for we don't know exactly what because it cannot be known.
otherwise it is conditioned. So let's reflect a few moments about this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.